Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, if you're new, we want to welcome you guys. If you're new, I'm not the lead pastor here, so come back next week if you don't like today. Um, just the youth pastor. Um, I'm glad you're here this morning. It's a great privilege for me uh, to be given the opportunity to teach this morning. Um, so we're just going to jump right in. The text that we're in this morning is Acts chapter 18. Um, but before we read it, I need to give us a little bit of context because we're going to be at the end of chapter 18. So we need to set up some stuff that happens at the beginning of chapter 18 um, to kind of help us understand what's going on. So some of this is in your, is in your handout at the beginning. Uh, Acts 18 verses 1 through 23, it describes the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We're talking about the very end of his second missionary journey. If you were here last week, uh, I'm going to throw a map up on the screen. I hope you guys like maps because I've got a lot of maps uh, today in the text. So if you were here last week, Landon taught us about Philippi on the top uh, left-hand corner of the screen where Paul had this vision. We call it the Macedonian call. He has this vision that he needs to go preach the gospel in Macedonia, and he travels across the sea to Philippi, and he meets Lydia. He meets several people, but Landon talked specifically last week about Lydia. Uh, he prays with her, talks with her at a prayer meeting, and she's converted to Christianity, and she's an integral part of the early church in Philippi. So that was last week. Uh, 1 through 23 kind of describes, if you look at the second circle on the, the middle left hand, Paul has traveled down. He's left Macedonia. He's traveled down to Corinth. Okay, so that's kind of 1 through 23 where he's at. Um, and at Corinth, Paul traveled to Corinth, and he meets somebody else. He meets a new New people, a new couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Meet some people named Priscilla and Aquila. Those, those names might be familiar to you if you've read a lot of the Bible. Maybe they might not be. It's okay, either way. So these three people, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they become really good friends. Um, they, they work together. They minister together in Corinth for a year and a half. Um, after staying in Corinth for over a year and six months, they sail together for Ephesus. Um, so I've got another map for you of where they sail across. So they're in Corinth, and they go across the Mediterranean Sea into Ephesus. And so our text, uh, chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, is they've reached Ephesus. Okay, Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, they're in Ephesus, and so that's what we're reading about. So here, let's go ahead and read the text, chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so that's our text. Our big idea this morning from this text is going to be that disciples make disciples. Disciples are those who make other disciples. Disciples of Jesus 
make disciples. That's just what we do. This is what disciples do. And so to better understand what's exactly happening here in these verses, we need to understand the people involved a little bit better. So we're gonna, I'm going to talk about Apollos first, and then I'll give you a little bit more information about Aquila and Priscilla. So let's look at Apollos. Who is Apollos? What, does, what do these verses tell us about who he is? The first thing is that he's a Jewish man. Apollos is a Jewish man, meaning he's a follower of the God of Israel, okay? He's an Old Testament believer, follower of Yahweh, right? Now, just that in and of itself is not enough for us to know whether he also followed Jesus or not, but he's a follower of the God of Israel. Some Jewish people believed Jesus was the Messiah. They were converted. Some rejected that, but, but Apollos is a Jewish man. Next, he's an Alexandrian man. It says he's from Alexandria. Sometimes when, when we read the Bible and we see details like this, we kind of just gloss over them. Jewish man from Alexandria, and we just kind of gloss over it. And sometimes it's okay to do that, but sometimes details like this are kind of important. And this is one of those cases where it kind of helps us to understand a little bit about his background. So uh, let me give you a map, like maps. So at the bottom of the, the screen is Alexandria. Okay, in the middle, there's Corinth and Ephesus. So you can kind of get your bearings Apollos is there. Alexandria was a part of Egypt. And so that's where Apollos traveled from. Um, and if you're a history buff, you might know that in ancient Alexandria, Alexandria was home to one of the biggest libraries in the world at, at the time. Um, I've got given you a drawing of what one artist, a version of what it might have looked like. We actually don't know for sure because there's no remains left from the Alexandrian Library, but we can kind of piece together what it looked like based off of other writings, descriptions about the library that still exist, that we can read. Um, and so we know a lot about it. Some people say, from, from learning from these writings about the Alexandrian Library, that it would have contained up to 500,000 scrolls, half a million scrolls at the peak of its use, half a million, you could say, books. Okay, And there were up to... A hundred people on staff at its peak to maintain the Alexandria, to maintain its library, to maintain the building. Up to a hundred people could have been on staff at the library. Now, we call it a library, the Alexandrian Library today, but it really functioned more like a university. If you think about it today, it was more than just a library. It had more than just scrolls. There were lecture halls. There were classrooms. There were study rooms. All the brightest minds in this area of the world flocked to Alexander, they flocked to that library to study. One, because it had thousands and thousands of scrolls that they couldn't get anywhere else. Two, because they knew other bright minds would be there and they could study together. They could even write new works of literature and add it to the Alexandrian library. Um, and so a lot of discoveries were made in Alexandria. And Alexandria's goal with this library was to collect all of the knowledge of the world under one roof. Everything that was written they wanted a copy of it. They wanted a copy of every single scroll, every single book ever written in the world. And so they actually started instituting laws to help accomplish this. Whenever a ship would dock into Alexandria, they were forced to hand over their scrolls so that the scribes at the library could then make copies of the scrolls and add them to their library. They even hired professional book hunters, book hunters who sailed across the Mediterranean Sea new places in search of new texts. 
that they hadn't read, that they hadn't heard about. They wanted everything that had ever been written. They wanted a copy of it at the Alexandrian Library. And so, in the ancient world, a library like this would have had a ton of importance. It would have been very, very crucial to knowledge. Um, students, I know you guys don't remember a time before the internet, but it did exist. It didn't always exist, right? This, this happened before the internet. You couldn't just Google something. If you wanted to read you know, something by a famous scholar, you had to go find a physical copy of it. You couldn't just download it on your Kindle. You had to go, and so a lot of people went. They traveled to Alexandria because it was the best place to study, right? the best place to read works of literature. So he's, that's where Apollos is from. He's an Alexandrian man. That's his background. His time at Alexandria undoubtedly led to him becoming an eloquent man. The text says he's an eloquent man. Apollos just had, had a way with words. He had a good command of words. He could use them well. Right? He was convincing when he spoke. He knew how to frame his arguments convincingly. Okay? He was good at debating. He's an eloquent man. In our text, we also see he's a learned man. A learned man. And specifically, he was learned man in the Hebrew Scriptures. It says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's learned in the scriptures. Now, he probably knew and had read about the writings of the Greeks and the Egyptians, which would have been in abundance at the Alexandrian Library, but he was learned. He was instructed specifically in the way of the Lord. Okay? When Apollos was little in Sunday school, he knew every answer. Okay? Jesus. He knew every answer. He was the brightest kid in Bible drill. He could, you know, he was the brightest kid in Bible drill class. In Awanas, he earned every single patch known to man. His teachers had to make up new patches because he earned them all too quickly. That's Apollos. Bright, bright, bright man. He knew the scriptures, forwards and backwards. The thing about Apollos, though, is he didn't just know the scriptures in his head. He knew them in his heart. Okay, Because our text says he's also a fervent man. He's a fervent man. Apollos was passionate about what he was teaching, about what he was preaching. Okay, Apollos preached like a man on fire. He's passionate. It says he preached with boldness. He preaches with power about what he's teaching. So that's Apollos. Let's talk about Priscilla and Aquila. So in our text at the end of chapter 18, it doesn't give any introductory information like it does about Apollos. That's because if you've read through chapter 18, the author does it at the beginning of chapter 18. So let's read 18, 1 through 3. We'll get the introduction to Aquila and Priscilla. Now this is when they're with Paul back in Corinth. 18 verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. But, sorry, because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so, Aquila and Priscilla, what do we learn about them? They're a Jewish couple. Jewish couple. So they, along with Apollos, along with Paul, all four of these people in our text, they're Jewish people, Jewish heritage. Second, they're natives of Pontius. Third, they're exiles from Rome. I'm going to give you both of those back to back. Natives of Pontius. 
exiles from Rome. So let me throw up the map, show you where these places are at. Uh, Pontius, top right-hand corner of the screen. Okay, that's where they're from. They lived in Italy, Rome, Italy, top left-hand corner. That's where they lived at the beginning of Acts chapter 18. And then it says, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, forced all the Jews to leave. He exiled them. And so they move in the middle of the screen to Corinth. That's how they wind up in Corinth. Now, this event, this exile from, from Emperor Claudius is backed up by other non-biblical texts. It's, it's actually a pretty interesting thing. We don't exactly know why. Um, some sort of disturbance that the Jews were making. You could speculate on to why, but we're not going to go into that. But for, for some reason, he forces them to leave Rome and they move to Corinth. Okay, so they wind up in Corinth. While in Corinth, they made tents. They're tent makers by trade. That's what they did for a living. They're tent makers. Uh, verse 3, you probably, probably know this. The Apostle Paul was also a tent maker. Verse 3 tells us that they started working together. Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul, they worked together. They do the same trade. And so this is probably how they got to know each other, how, probably how they became friends. Okay? They made tents to support themselves financially while they ministered together in Corinth. They made tents. And they worked together, they worked together making tents, and they worked together at the church. So, and then verse 11 tells us they're here in Corinth. I've already said this, but I want to show you from the text that they do this for a year and a half. Verse 11 says, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So for a year and a half, every day they're getting up and they're making tents together, and they're ministering to the church together. They're building up the church while they practice their trade together. And after a year and a half, they actually leave Ephesus, I mean, leave Corinth for Ephesus together. Aquila and Priscilla become missionary companions of Paul's. They become companions of Paul's. And so, verse 18 describes this departure. Verse 18 says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And then in verse 19 says, they came to Ephesus. So they leave Corinth together. They're setting sail for Syria. But it says they come to Ephesus. I got one more map for you guys. So they, they're in Corinth on the left hand. The text says that their destination is Syria, which is on the bottom right hand corner of the screen. But then it says they wind up in Ephesus. It says they come to Ephesus. The text doesn't exactly tell us why they stopped in Ephesus. Could have been bad weather. You know, could have been they needed supplies that they couldn't get in Ephesus. Maybe this was just a, a common ancient sailing practice throughout the Mediterranean to break up, your, break up your trip like this. I don't know. But, but what we do know is that Ephesus was not the goal. Ephesus was not the destination. But they're, going, they're trying to go to Syria. Right? So Paul can go on a third missionary journey. So Ephesus is simply a stop along the way to the larger destination of Syria. Paul already had made plans to begin a third missionary journey. Okay? But what was just a stop for Paul was, was a long-term stay for Priscilla and Aquila. Paul moves on to Syria. Aquila and Priscilla, they stay. They get left behind to minister, to build up the church in Ephesus. And so, that's some of the background. There's a 
whole, whole lot that we can take away from these texts, this, these people that disciple one another. There's a lot of observations that we can make, but I've made 10, 10 observations about discipleship that we can learn from Apollos, from Priscilla and Aquila, and even from Paul. So the first point on what do they teach us about discipleship is that discipleship involves teaching the scriptures. Discipleship involves teaching the scriptures. And so remember, Apollos is from Alexandria. When Apollos traveled to Ephesus, he probably didn't know anybody there. He most certainly didn't know Priscilla and Aquila. They hadn't met before. The first thing that Apollos does when he gets to Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue and he teaches. He teaches using the scriptures. Verse 25 says, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Right? We know he was able to do this because he'd been instructed in them in his time in Alexandria. He knew the scriptures well. He knew about the promised Messiah and he knew how that they pointed to somebody, somebody else. Right? He heard about the baptism of John, that the kingdom of heaven was here, right, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's teaching and he's using the scriptures accurately. The text says that about him. So if you want to disciple, you need to use the scriptures. Secondly, discipleship involves teaching and being taught. Discipleship involves teaching, but it also involves being taught. And so there's this kind of strange dichotomy in the text where on the one hand it says Apollos, he does teach accurately, he teaches the scriptures accurately, but then it mentions Priscilla and Aquila coming along beside him and it says they teach him more accurately. So he teaches accurately, Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and they teach it to him more accurately. The King James Version says they teach it to him more perfectly. They sharpen him, they refine him, they fill in the gaps. There was a some kind of gap in his knowledge of the gospel, his knowledge of Jesus. They filled in the gaps for him, right? And until Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollo's teaching, teaching what he did know about Jesus, teaching what he did know about the scriptures, they didn't know what he didn't know, right? When they heard him teach what he did know, they were able to then help fill the gaps, fill in the gaps for him, right? Some of, some of us, some of you, might need to be nudged a little bit to do more teaching, Maybe your fear of getting it wrong is what's keeping you from saying anything at all. Right? And getting it wrong is a fair and a genuine concern. But if, if we try to wait until we have the answer to every question that somebody could possibly ever ask, we'll never start. Apollos didn't have the answer to every question, but he was still teaching. This says he taught accurately. Right? But when Apollos became a teacher, he did not stop becoming a learner. He was a teacher, but he was humble enough to still be taught. That's the key in discipleship. But for some of you, you though, you might not be called to teach publicly. Right? You might not be called to preach a sermon, teach a Sunday school class, and that's perfectly fine. But everybody is called to make a disciple. Disciples make disciples. Your gifting for making disciples might not be in a public avenue like it was for Apollos, publicly teaching in the synagogue, some of you might be gifted more like Priscilla and Aquila, who, who find Apollos afterwards, and it says they pull him aside. Right? We're assuming they pull him aside and they privately disciple him. They show him the scriptures, right? and they help teach him more accurately. Because discipleship involves both of those methods. Discipleship involves public and private methods. 
we're all called to make disciples, but we're not all called to be a pastor. We're not all called to teach in some kind of public position. If your gifting is not in an avenue of public discipleship, we still don't get a free pass on the Great Commission. We still have to make disciples. We're still called to do that. Make disciples is a command for every Christian. But it looks differently with each of us based off of your gifting, right? Even if you've been a Christian for just one day, you still have something to share to the non-believers around you, to the non-believers in your circle of influence, right? We're not all called to be pastors or preach sermons or teach Bible studies, but we're all called to make disciples. We all have people that you can pull aside and privately disciple, privately teach. Maybe it's your children, parents. Those are your primary people in your life that you're called to disciple, right? And most of that's gonna be in a private manner. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe a family member, maybe a spouse. You don't have to preach a sermon to make disciples. You can do it like Priscilla and Aquila and pull somebody aside. And so, in discipleship, though, we need to remember that results don't happen overnight. Making disciples takes a lot of commitment. It takes endurance. It takes time. Discipleship involves a time commitment. The time commitment is something that a lot of young seminary students have to figure out once they leave seminary and go to a church for the first time. They've spent their time in seminary studying doctrine, studying the word, studying the church and how it should function, and they're on fire, right? And they go to a church, and churches are full of sinners, right? Like me and like y'all. They're full of sinners, and they think they know exactly what's wrong with every church, and they want to come in and make every single change overnight, right? And they're confused, they're frustrated, when the, when the congregation maybe lashes back, they reject some of the changes, right? And maybe they, they get burnt out. Maybe they leave the church to a new church. Maybe they leave ministry altogether. That's a lesson you've got to learn, that discipleship takes time. It takes time for maturity. Paul discipled Aquila and Priscilla for a year and a half. We learned that in the beginning of Acts 18. He discipled Aquila and Priscilla for one and a half years before he left them on their own. Now, everything we've read about Aquila and Priscilla seems to indicate that they were already pretty mature, pretty godly people. But maybe the person that that you're discipling isn't going to be like that. It might take longer than a year and a half, right? We need to remember that it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes dependence on the Lord, or we're going to run out of steam. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to get burnt out. One of the things that help with this is delegation. It's another thing that discipleship involves is delegating. Well, it's delegation. So I'm really good at delegating, I think. Um, I've already got a five-year-old scheduled to teach for me one day in youth group. Really good at delegating. Um, His name is Chance Justice. You might know him and his parents, uh, Willie and Heather. Heather runs the nursery here at the church, and so I see Chance uh, in the church office a lot, and we kind of just have this running joke, me and Chance, that he's going to teach for me one day in youth. Um, and his kind of excuse has been, he has to be six first. He's five, you got to wait until he's six. So he turned six in October, and so I remembered that, and I said, okay, we're going to put you on the calendar. So this is actually a picture of my calendar in my office. November 2nd, Chance Justice, fresh six-year-old, 
is going to teach in youth, okay? But I'm a good delegator. I'm a healthy delegator. I'm going to help him with this lesson. I don't leave him, leave him to fend for himself. So I, I helped him with this lesson, figured out what he wanted to teach. I wrote the title out for him, and he wrote the rest. So this is his lesson on how Moses died. This is what he's going to teach. So obviously this is a silly example. Obviously Chance is too young to teach the youth at the age of six, right? He can't even spell words yet, right? Obviously he's too young to teach. This would be a foolish thing for me to do, right? That's not a healthy way to delegate. He's too young. But one day he won't be. One day his generation will be the leaders. One day his generation will be teaching We'll be lead pastors, we'll be youth pastors, we'll be worship pastors. They'll be lay people, right? One day, they'll be teaching. You disciple somebody with the intentions, not that they just become a sponge and soak it all in, but that they do the same thing. You disciple somebody with the intentions of raising them up so they can go out and disciple somebody else. And we see that modeled in Acts 18. Paul, discipled, ministered with Priscilla and Aquila, for a year and a half. And when they reached Ephesus, Paul felt comfortable enough to move on and leave Priscilla and Aquila to continue ministering there in Ephesus. Essentially, Paul duplicated himself. He didn't have to be in Ephesus to continue leaving his mark there. He had already left it in Priscilla and Aquila. He was able to move on and minister in a new place while Priscilla and Aquila stayed behind and ministered in Ephesus. It's because he's delegated that to them. He, he brought them up so that they would become leaders and disciple other people. Discipleship involves delegation. It also involves different kinds of folks. Discipleship involves different folks, different folks. So as far as we know from the Bible, Aquila and Priscilla had no sort of formal education. They never went to a seminary. They never got to go to the Alexandrian library and study like Apollos did. As far as we know, they're just a faithful husband and wife who love the Lord and love people. This is how, if Priscilla and Aquila were alive today, this is kind of how I picture where they would be, what they would be like. Just a, a country church, country pastor, uh, ranches cattle for a living, pastors a church of 20 people on the side, right? Not because he's a brilliant Bible expositor, but because he loves God and he loves people. Just a godly couple, Apollos, though, is different. Apollos was, was studied, learned. Apollos, I picture him as a Harvard graduate. He's a Harvard graduate who went to Harvard, felt called to ministry afterwards, went to seminary, got a, another doctoral degree, got multiple doctoral degrees just because he loves studying so much. Right, that's Apollos. They're different folks. Quill and Priscilla, Apollos, even Paul, they're different folks. They're different people with different backgrounds. That's us. We are different people. We're different people with different backgrounds. Some of us are, have been born and raised in Odessa. Some of us haven't. Some of us like sports. Some of us hate sports. <coughs> some of you, or some of us, like spicy food. Melissa Quintana and myself, we love spicy food. Some of you prefer mild flavorings. Some of you are like Cody. Right, you prefer mild. Sorry, Cody. Love you. But there's differences between us. Right? There's differences between us. We are different people. We're different folks. 
right? And rather than our differences dividing us, our differences are what strengthen us as a church body. We have different giftings that can be used in different ways to build up the church. Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos, they had unity in their diversity. Their unity around the gospel message allowed the gospel to flourish in Ephesus, and it allowed the gospel to flourish beyond Ephesus. And the Ephesus kind of goes into my next point, is that discipleship involves going and sending. Discipleship involves going and it involves sending. Now we see both of these multiple times in Acts 18. Priscilla and Aquila traveled with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. They were goers, goers from Corinth to Ephesus. Apollos traveled from Alexandria to Ephesus. He was a goer. He went to Ephesus. Apollos, after getting discipled, after getting sharpened, refined in his faith by Priscilla and Aquila, he desired to go somewhere else. He desired to be sent out to a new place. He wanted to go to Corinth, where Priscilla and Aquila had just come from. And Priscilla and Aquila, to their credit, they helped him. They didn't hold on to Apollos. They didn't say, Apollos, we have spent so much time discipling you, training you in the Bible. Why don't you just stay and help us and help our church? No, they send him. They, they bless his desire to go spread the gospel somewhere else. They write a letter of recommendation to the believers in Corinth who they knew that Apollos, he is this great guy. You're going to love him. He's going to teach the Bible well. He's going to help your church. They bless his desire to go and they send him. Going and sending. Behind every missionary in the world today, there's a whole host of people who help to send them, who help to get them there. Discipleship involves both things. It involves people who will go, and it involves people who will help send them there. And we go to new places, to unreached places, so that we can help make disciples, right? help minister to new, new believers, new disciples. That's a part of discipleship. Discipleship involves both of those, new believers and non-believers. Discipleship involves new believers and non-believers. Sometimes we as Christians in America, we kind of separate out evangelism and discipleship like we only do one or the other. The Bible doesn't really divide those two. Like it's all wrapped up in the same thing. We're called to make disciples. It doesn't say go get people to pray a prayer. It doesn't say go make new converts. It says make disciples, right? And we ought to praise God when, when a non-believer becomes a believer, right? When the Holy Spirit convicts someone of their sin and they become a believer. But we better not just breathe a sigh of relief and say, ah, the work is done. They've prayed the prayer. No, in many ways, the work has just started. When somebody becomes a new believer, it's just begun. Right? We should never leave a new believer to fend for themselves, to figure out everything that's involved in walking the journey of faith on their own. Paul did this in his missionary journeys. He went back to the same churches over and over and over again. And we see that and we're like, why would Paul spend so much time, so much resources going back to the same places over and over when there were new places that he hadn't been yet, when there were unreached places. It's because it's not just evangelism, it's, it's both, right? Paul wanted to strengthen the disciples. He still had to go back, right, to fix false teaching, to encourage them. 
He wanted to strengthen the new believers and the non-believers, right? Nourishing the nations. They just did a pastor's conference in Kenya for pastors. But if you ask Chris Harrington if that conference was for the believers in Kenya or for the non-believers in Kenya, he'd say, yes, it's for both, right? The goal is to train those pastors and send them back to their church so that they can minister in their context to the new believers and the non-believers, right? They're both involved in making disciples. Next, discipleship involves everyone. Discipleship involves everyone, whether you're a paid church staff member or whether you work for a living outside of the church. Discipleship involves all of us. Everybody has a hand in making disciples. Those who devote most of their life to study, like Apollos did, or those who devote their life to a trade, like Priscilla and Aquila. They made tents. They were blue-collar people, but they were big-time leaders in the church in Corinth and in Ephesus, in the early church. Discipleship involves all of us, everybody. Lastly, most importantly, discipleship must involve grace. Discipleship has to involve grace. We could read the scriptures and follow all of the discipleship strategies that we see in Acts and all of Paul's letters. We could follow those to a T. We could teach them accurately, follow everything to a T, but it does not mean a thing apart from the grace of God, apart from the grace of God to save sinners like us. Years later, after Apollos had taught in Corinth, Paul wrote to them the book of 1 Corinthians. The church had forgotten what initially united them. There's, there's conflict, there's division in the church. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Apollo, I mean, Paul and Apollos knew that apart from the grace of God, Nobody's coming to faith. Nobody's going to be discipled. Our job in discipleship is to do like Paul and Apollos, is to do the planting, is to do the watering. But apart from the grace of God, there's not going to be any growth. We, we plant, we water, and we pray that the Holy Spirit convicts people. We pray that God gives growth. It's because discipleship is not mainly about you or about me. It wasn't about Apollos or Paul or Priscilla and Aquila. Discipleship is mainly about the good news of Jesus. That has to be what is central in discipleship, the good news of God, the grace of God to save sinners like us.